welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. This week, this is a rare show for us this week. Rare? This week, we will end up talking about several different varieties of autosport, motorsport. So it is a cornucopia of motorsport? Yeah. It is a variety pack of motorsport. Okay. It is... A passel of motorsport. Okay. I'm, I'm yeah, I, th- I think you're just stretching there, but. I, I ran out of them. <laughs> well, our first bit of motorsports variety is actually, it's not great news. Um, the international, I, I guess that's the best way to put it, is the international motorsport community community. Uh, was in a little bit of shock this week, uh, grieving a little bit this week, uh, after word came out on Friday that John Surtees had passed away at the age of 83. Now, so he's 83, there was shock? Yes. Okay. This, this is a guy who, who has been in fast-moving vehicles probably into his 80s, after his 80th birthday. Oh, this this is somebody much like, oh, if Sir Sterling had passed away, there would be a lot of shock. And so who is John Surtees? Hopefully it is a name that you have at least heard, even if you don't know a lot about him or where you heard it. Yeah. Well, he is an old school racer back from the days when uh, Formula One racing safety gear was basically a polo helmet and a handlebar mustache, <laughs> but he didn't have a mustache. Ooh. So. <laughs> Riding on the edge. Um, but John Surtees is actually the first and only person to ever win a Formula One world championship and a motorcycling world championship. So he has won world championships on both two and four wheels. The only man to have ever done so. Wow. So definitely living that legacy of if it goes fast, I race it. Yes, very much so. Um, His sole title was claimed in 1964 uh, when he became, uh, well, when he won the world championship for Ferrari. Oh. Well, I'm sorry to see him pass. Yeah, I mean, he is one of those legendary folks in Formula One, and not just because... Um, he won a world championship. He was very well respected and wi- widely regarded regarded by drivers past and present. Um, a lot of the current drivers, and Nico Rosberg in particular, said, "Well, I know now he's a past driver, mm-hmm. but Nico Rosberg in particular had commented that um, he had a very good relationship w- with John, and John mentored him a few times." So, on to other news, on to other series, as it were, because this week also happens to be the opening weekend for IndyCar. I still don't quite know why we use mariachi music for IndyCar, but it seems to be working. 
so yes, St. Petersburg is now playing host to the inaugural race of the 2017 season. Yes, street race that partially runs through an airport. Right. It's a 14-turn uh, makeshift street race. Uh, so no oval this time around. Uh, St. Petersburg holds you know warm places in a bunch of the drivers' hearts um, for reasons I'm still trying to figure out because we're still learning. <laughs> Um, however, there's some key things that I wanted to point out as we enter into the IndyCar season this year. Um, you'll be happy to know IndyCar is going to end around my birthday weekend in Sonoma. So we're headed towards September, not November. It's yeah. a shorter, tighter season, but there's a lot of races between now and then. Um, some basic driver news. Our, um, our drivers that we know and love, both Max and Alex... Xander Rossi have Alex. These referred to as Alex in like nine of the stories I read. And I'm like, we've never called him Alex before. Uh. So that was kind of, that was where the whole stutter happened. Um, but Max, Max and Alexander are back in their respective cars. This is the second year for both of them. Alexander Rossi, of course, winning the hundredth running of the Indianapolis 500 credits. A lot of his win to his coach, partner Herda is his last name Max Herda I believe is his name works for Andretti Racing came over from another team to work with Matt uh, with Alex well, well technically the team is Andretti Herda Motors. there was a team merge that happened and that's how Rossi became a driver for Andretti mm-hmm. with this Herda Mr. Herda is now coaching an Andretti because apparently the story the backstory is that Marco Andretti mm-hmm. goes from good to bad in every race. That the minute he starts to try to actually drive, he just gets worse and worse. Yeah, we've seen that. And apparently, he's been kind of beaten up for the last couple of years. So after the success that Rossi had last year, Herta is now focusing his mind-melding operations on Marco. Um, and... I wish I was kidding, but the quote that I loved so very much from the story was about um, how Herta felt that Marco was was doing, and this is the the quote that Marco said as he was bonding with Herta. It's still early days, and we're just going to chase the track. I think we're doing a good job of tra- chasing the track, and this is the one reason why we're quick. So they're chasing the track. They're I'm chasing just, the track. I'm, I'm, I don't know how you do that. I'm just kind of wondering if they were at the Dagobah International Speedway. <laughs> Maybe with Herda in a backpack on Marco's back. Possibly. Chase the track. That's that's what they, they're going to do, <laughs> is they're going to be chasing the track. Um, I'm, I'm reading this going, how exactly do you... The, the track kind of stays put, right? Yeah. So if, was, if you have to chase the track, there might be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> now, apparently, that when you get further down into the deep thoughts of Marco Andretti, deep thoughts here, you get further down. Um, Brian Herta, who's not Max Herta, he was Brian Herta. Uh, Brian has told him that he would just be happy if Marco would focus on hitting his marks. That is the goal here. Hitting that apparently mar- is what chasing the track means. Okay. Now, I know 
that in your IndyCar world, um, you were very worried about the manufacturers of IndyCar because I know how much you care about tires. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do so many tire stories that I get it. So it's my turn to turn the tables on you and talk tires. Are you ready? Okay. Firestone signed a long-term deal with IndyCar. Yeah, they've been really happy with, with uh, Firestone. You know, they don't complain about that. Although, I, my big issue with Firestone and their sponsorship. Yes. That Firehawk mascot that they have at the church, he's just creepy looking. He is a little creepy. That is really a little, weird. Little, a little creepy. <laughs> All right, so there are actually, within IndyCar, there are four manufacturers that um, matter. Matter. That are basically because yeah. keep in mind it's a spec car series, so all of the chassis are built by Delora. Mm-hmm. Um, all the tires are Firestone, and then there you get a choice of aero kits and engines. Yes, and they are either Chevy or Honda. Those are your choices. All four of those manufacturers recently, between January and this past week. Um, have signed long-term deals with IndyCar. Nobody's talking about how long is long-term or when their end dates are, and they're staggered, so it's not like everything's going to come due in five years. Right. Well, to to give you some idea, it's my understanding that Delara has been supplying this particular chassis to IndyCar for about eight years now. Um, There are, I I think there is talk of a chassis change in about two years. But there's definitely an aero change coming, because um, I guess you only had an option of two different aero kits, but now that may be opening up next year, I believe. Well, and I don't know about that. The, the story that I was reading on the primary suppliers did not discuss aero changes. Okay. But Jay Fry, um, the IndyCar president and competition of president of competition and operations. It's going to be an important name to remember. So that this is a very unique moment in IndyCar history. Um, to have four major manufacturers locked in with us for the foreseeable future points to the fact that they have all bought into the vision for the Verizon IndyCar series. It's another sign of a, the positive momentum we continue to build as we grow this sport into the next decade. Now, if that sounded a little positive to you, Understand that that is the rainbow and sprinkles that is all of the IndyCar stories. Well, you know, I was just thinking about something. Yes. Okay. It's the Verizon IndyCar series. Yes. And one of our cellular carriers in the U.S. likes to, you know, they brand themselves as the uncarrier and the hip one and the cool one and, you know, that they go a different direction from all the others. So I was just thinking. Wouldn't it be an absolutely awesome troll on the part of T-Mobile if they sponsored a car? Oh. Title sponsor. Yeah, I wonder if that would even be allowed. Wouldn't that be an awesome troll? That would be (laughs) truly awesome. What would be even more awesome is if they convinced that driver to go the wrong way every time they came out of the pits. That I don't think could happen. Yeah, that you might be a bridge too far. You zig when we zag. Yeah, that might be a bridge too far. Anyway, back to my my manufacturers. Um, so, okay, you've got these four manufacturers, and the article continues to talk a little bit about Honda's role because Honda is actually one of the longest manufacturers that has participated in any car. I don't know if you realize this. Um, they've been 
they joined IndyCar in 1994. Wow. Um, and shortly after, the California-based Honda Performance Development Group began. And they began producing engines for the kart series. Okay. So Honda won the kart titles consecutively from 96 to 2001. Been involved with open wheel racing for a long time, as you can clearly tell. They've actually done 24 (coughs) consistent years of open wheel racing. Now, this leads me to a... There is a Formula One connection here. I'm, I'm getting there. I promise you I'm making a Formula One connection. Now, Honda was the sole provider of engines up until uh, 2006. No. In 2006, Honda became the sole Ah. supplier for engines up until 2012. 2012, Chevy returns to the sport. Honda has not won an IndyCar championship since Chevy's return in 2012. So, in other words, Honda would really, really like it if Chevy dropped out. Apparently, that's how they win championships. Now, the, the Formula One connection I have to make is... Honda has got 24 years at a minimum in open wheel racing. Mm -hmm. They've been a part of the kart series, the Indy series and formula one. Mm -hmm. They can't get any of that, right? Well, you know, 20 years ago, but it's not 20 years ago. Honda was a force to be reckoned with in both Indy and in formula one. I mean, that was the big hope when Honda came back and partnered with McLaren, everybody said, Oh, look out because you know, these were the guys who were dominant and you know, they, they had what a season or two where they lost maybe one race, two races. These are, this is it. This is, you know, bring back the the red and white cars because they're going to just take over. And yeah, we, we see how that went and we're going to talk a little more about that in a bit, but. Yeah, well, that's my point. Is they can't seem to put it together for Formula One. We've had we've talked ad nauseum about you know how much Fernando Alonso loves his car, <laughs> um, and you know I was just I was just thinking the other day about you know famous Formula One quotes, and there was a Jensen quote that was so good about when he finally made it up into like eighth, eighth P eight. Mm-hmm. One time, and he's like, "Yeah, we were aiming for that." <laughs> yeah, oh, he's he's done that a few times. But keep in mind, the last time that a Honda-powered car won a world championship in Formula One, Jensen was driving it. So that would have been two thousand nine. Nine with Braun. And um, so we've got that. We've got the fact that Honda has not won a championship in IndyCar since twenty, since before twenty twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, they won every championship from 20, 2006 to 2011 because they had no competition. Yeah. But they won six straight years of kart championships, too. So my question becomes, at some point, you have to look at what is going on in the development of the Honda engine that it's taken such a turn. Well, where I believe there is one bit of a difference is that Honda Performance Division, HPD? HPD. HPD, is, which is doing the IndyCar engine, is not the group that is doing the Formula One engine. The IndyCar engine work is being done by the team of engineers in California. Right. The Formula One stuff is being done by a team of engineers in Japan. There's been a lot of talk about that. And in particular, 
one of the, the, the times that that was called out was not this past week, but the week before when they had the, the initial mechanical issue that took the car out after the oil pan issue. That engine was sent to Japan. Mm-hmm. It wasn't sent to California. And maybe that's some of the issue is that maybe they need to have one group doing all of these engines, although I think it's a completely different type. I mean, it's not the hybrid engine that, that I get Formula that there's One functionality has, but... that's different between the two engines, but you've got to think that you could have a performance racing engine team that could collaborate on some basics. You know, what do I know? I think most engines probably work fairly similarly to each other. They combust fuel, they move parts. I mean, wouldn't you want people that specialize in performance racing to kind of collaborate and then they can take their tweaks in the different ways that they need to function but i would think that they're spreading their smarts a little thin that may be the case all i know is they're they signed another long-term deal with indy they're not doing they're not getting out of that anytime soon but one would hope that they would want to start winning a little bit here because otherwise, the drivers... Well, th- they have won races. They have not won championships. Right. And they si- they did sign a new team this year, going into this year. Chip Ganassi Racing right. left Chevy and moved over to Honda. And again, this is another team that has had a significant amount of success partnered with Honda. So I would temper the excitement that you know ooh, chip ganassi racing did all this great stuff with honda and you know they're now back together so it's going to be awesome well you know we see how that went with mclaren so yeah <laughs> got to temper it a little bit there but there is some hope that maybe that can help some if nothing else it's one more team that they have that they can use for research and development true if nothing else true um, so qualifying is actually ahead of us as we record a little bit early in our normal schedule this week. So we still are facing qualifying. It looks like coming out of practices that um, all of your favorites, uh, Simon Pagano and Scott Dixon, are sitting up there on top. IndyCar champion Simon Pagano. Yes, he is defending his championship this mm-hmm. year. Um, in fact, I think he has a quote about um, – you know, racing, not defending, <laughs> but it's uh, going to build up to be a fairly interesting year, I think. You know what we have to look up? We haven't done this yet, and we need to. We need to go see what Scott Dixon's car looks like. It's blue. Who, but, but who's the main sponsor? Because he I was know. Target. I know. I think I know. Um, if it's the car that I believe I read in the article, and forgive me, I was trying to catch up. But his car is the GE LED Lightning. Ooh. Um, so, some marketing person earned his latte that day. Yes. <laughs> Scott Dixon's number nine GE LED Lightning Honda. That is lighting Honda. It, if only. Lighting Honda, not lightning Honda. Ah, uh, Okay. <laughs> There's, that an, makes, there's a missing that makes, that makes better <laughs> sense then. <laughs> I thought somebody was being slick with the marketing. but I would have hoped that they would have been more slick with the, the marketing. I, but no, he's a bright bulb now. Well, I was going to say it's a really good thing that GE LED Lighting is sponsoring the car since indie cars don't have lights. <laughs> <laughs> I'm showing Michael. They a don't picture. even have the stickers. They don't even have stickers. Um, yeah, but he is a bright, 
shades of blue. I think there's like two shades of blue, a little bit of white because white makes it go fast. We all know that. And a streak of yellow. Mm. Streak. So I'm sure that that is um, going to make him go very, very quickly. I was looking. I don't see. You know things I don't see in IndyCar are like the big reveals of the livery reveals. Yeah, they don't do any of that. Any of that. There's none of that stuff. They don't, they don't do any of that at all. And, and you know, that that's a legacy of Formula One and the media and sponsor hype that they have had. That, well, that they had. They don't really have it as much anymore. Yeah. So that's what I've got on Formula One. I think that uh, we're going to be trying to step up our watching of more single-seater open-wheel racing adventures as we lead into the pinnacle of our IndyCar year, which is, of course, Mid-Ohio. Um, the Honda 200 at, Min- at Mid-Ohio. Yes. It's where we will be podcasting live, and you'll get it in taper delay. We are? Of course we will podcast from the track side. You might have wanted to discuss this with me, because that's a whole new level of logistics. Of course we're going to podcast or do some sort of recording track we'll be, side. We'll be tweeting. I don't know if we're going to record just yet. Of course we will be doing some some form of recording track side. All right. So now Patricia has written checks that I don't know if we can cash. We'll move on to series number three. Series number three. Well, series number one was motorcycles with, with John Surtees. Okay. Two IndyCar. Was, was IndyCar. Series number three, GP2. GP2. Officially, as of this week, Fernando Alonso, in frustration, will not be able to yell over the radio that a GP2 car is faster than his McLaren because GP2 no longer exists. They closed down all of GP2? No, the series has been retitled and reclassified as Formula 2, effective as of this week. Ooh. Now, what this means, this is not simply just a matter of renaming the series and, and move on. There's actually a bit more to it than just this. Because this actually has an impact on super license. Points. I was going to say, because Formula 2 was a thing. Formula 2 was a thing many, many years ago and, and went defunct. Uh, GP2 was was around back then as well. But when the super license points were revised as a result of um, a certain drinks manufacturer hiring a 17-year-old driver, um, <laughs> when those super license points were uh, revised – there was a category put in for a Formula 2 series. And the Formula 2 series drivers and, and champions got more points for, towards their super license than GP2 drivers. Ah. Yes. That's the big thing there. So this is also supposed to make a logical pathway up to to formula one um there is a f3 series there has been so it seemed a little odd that you went from f3 to gp2 to formula one correct so you now go f3 to f2 to formula one 
I think that makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, I've always wondered, especially when they made that rules change on the super license, why they were making rules around a Formula 2 series when a Formula 2 series didn't exist. Yeah. And a lot of people kind of already thought that GP2 was Formula 2, but it wasn't Formula 2. And So what will end up happening now is that the top three drivers will all score 40 points instead of the top two. And the next seven will score 30, 20, 10, 8, 6, 4, and 3 points, respectively. And how many points is needed for Super License? I'm not sure off the top of my head. More than I have. Yes, definitely more than. I believe that it's 40 points, and if you win the championship, you're eligible for it. And then otherwise, you got to have some other permutation of points earning without a championship in place. Oh, okay is how that works um the other thing is that with the exception of uh one race in the formula one calendar there will also be formula two races oh wow yes and there is outside of that i believe it's her there is one race that'll be in her yes standalone event in her prior to its final round well, congratulations to GP2 for graduating to Formula 2. Yeah. We're so that's motorsport number three. We're headed to four. Now we go to four. And we'll be at four for most of this until the end. And then we hit five. Wow. We're going to have a I whole handful you. of motorsport. I told you. We're, we, we're all over the place this week. Are so, we talking NASCAR at all? No, we are not. Yes. Okay. That's all I needed to know. <laughs> We're still, you know, watching what's happening with Liberty and what they're going to do to, a, a, as they said last week, detonate the fan experience. This week we heard from Ross Braun, who spoke with Sky Sports. One of the things that he said is that he wants to wean the series off of pay drivers. Wean it off of pay drivers? Yes. What he says is he would like to restore Formula One to being a, quote, proper meritocracy. He says, we should have the 20 best drivers in the world, and the reality is that at the bottom of the grid, the commercial consideration of the drivers is much stronger than it is at the front of the grid. The front end of the grid, it's just, who's the best driver we can find? The back end of the grid is, what's the best driver we can find and maybe bring some commercial sponsorship? And if we can put the smaller teams on a sound enough footing, they don't have to make that decision, then I think the whole sport will improve. You get more of the Verstappens coming into the sport than we have now. Okay. It's an interesting theory, but I got a question for you. Okay. How many Verstappens are out there that don't have a shot at Formula One? We don't know. Because if you're that phenomenal... Wouldn't you naturally have risen to the top? Again, you, you don't really know. And the, the question is, would that have meant that, uh, who is the, the Red Bull driver who's been trying to break in? I can't remember. Pierre Gasly. You know, we don't follow the Junior Series too much. So, But, but you know, if you're somebody like Pierre Gasly, who is supposed to be fairly highly regarded, without that Red Bull backing, 
would he have possibly outplaced Lance Stroll or Esteban Ocon or Esteban Gutierrez? Mm. We don't know. You know, maybe Marcus Erickson might have been displaced from a seat. We don't know. I, but I also, unless there is a, you know, like he says here, a major change in the financial makeup of the sport and how the sport is run and how funds are distributed in the sport, this will never happen. No. It's a great idea, but it will never happen. It's just not realistic. And even, and I can't imagine them being able to ban this sort of thing. Well, there's too many workarounds. Yeah. Because all it takes is um, uh, Pascal Verline coming in and his contract read that we'll pay you the legal dollar, the legal euro, I guess. Mm-hmm. And what the team actually gets. Are his the the sponsor his pay comes from the sponsorships that he carries. Yeah, and the team is only paying him a dollar because that would be the letter of the rule that the team must pay the driver's salary. Well, the driver's salary is now a dollar. So in order for him to you know pay rent, he's got to go out and shill for Verizon. Well, but also, how do you prevent? A driver with sponsors from walking in the door and the sponsors going, hey, to encourage you to go and sign our driver, which is probably what they're doing now. Hey, to encourage you to sign our driver, we'll pay you 10 million pounds more than your going rate for this spot on the car. Right. I mean, how do you stop that? Yeah. I mean, that there's, there's too many ins and outs of that that would happen. And... You know, different ways that they launder the money through the system. Whether it's, you know, that particular sponsor says, well, you know, if you hire this driver, you don't have to pay him because we'll pay his his salary Mm -hmm. and we'll buy you your suspension system. So at that point, the point becomes moot. There's no way around it, truly. Unless you have nothing but drivers that are very, very wealthy. Like, oh, a Lance Stroll. Right. We now have a little bit of science content. Science. This this past week, another letter was written. Not by Ferrari. No. This time, it came from Red Bull. Red Bull wrote a letter... um, asking the FIA to clarify on oil burning. Okay. So so here here's you know our, our little bit of science. Science. As a result of Red Bull's letter, the FIA has reminded engine manufacturers that they are not allowed to burn engine oil as fuel. As fuel? What happened here is Red Bull accused Mercedes that uh, of doing this same thing last year during qualifying. Now, where this comes from is that um, it's believed that Mercedes was able to extract an improvement in engine performance during qualifying 
but not necessarily during the race. So the thought here that has emerged and, and it, that Red Bull had is that uh, Mercedes was burning excess oil with added power boosting or anti-knock additives to help deliver extra performance when it was needed in Q2 and Q3. Then you look at this year, the engines are running on a closed system. So basically what this is is that the engine sump breather has to vent to the main engine air intake system. With this kind of a setup, the possibility of using oil as fuel has increased as it is more likely to get sucked into the combustion chamber. However, such an action would be in breach of the rules because manufacturers are strictly limited in terms of the chemicals that can be used to power the engines. Okay. So Mercedes insists that they have not been doing this and they have always complied with the rules, but Red Bull, they, they were pushing for a clarification. So in response to all of this, Mercedes was willing to impose a 5-kilogram limit on oil use. However, such a figure was viewed as above what would have been used anyway. So as a result, Red Bull wrote its letter. So we will see what happens. Um, the FIA did acknowledge that it was impossible to rule out some consumption of oil to take place when the engine was used. But this also would be a way to get around, oh, fuel flow limiters? Well, it would be. But, I mean, keep in mind, we're talking very little amounts here. I mean, I get that there's oil in the engine, but... You can't burn all the engine oil. You'd have a seized engine. And that's not what they're, what the accusation is. But I think more it's the accusation of the chemicals that are in the oil, even if it's just a drop or two, that could improve the performance of the combustion chamber of the engine. And remember, they're not talking full race kind of stuff here. They're only talking during um, qualifying Q2 and Q3. So, okay, so it burns a couple of kilograms of oil in Q2. Before they go out in Q3, they top up the oil. Mm -hmm. hey, this is a team, this is splitting hairs. Yes, and it's a team that I'm telling you, if they had thought of it, they would have done it. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's more of the angry with themselves that they hadn't figured out how to do it. Well, what the other thing that they are trying to deal with, or at least Christian Horner is trying to deal with, he wants to have a meeting. He wants a meeting. He wants a meeting. Um, he actually, he's trying to get the team bosses together in a room along with the FIA to eliminate the shark fin before Australia. Ooh. I don't think it, I don't think there's any chance of it happening. And not just the shark fin, he wants the, uh, the T fin to go away as well. Wow. Because he says they're ugly. Well. He is in agreement with you on that. And Christian and I do have a special bond where we agree on such things. Now, I'm not as opposed to the T fin as I am the shark fin. The shark fin is pretty heinous. And I'll have Especially you know. Especially in Red Bull's configuration. Yes. <laughs> and I'll have you know that our listener, Phil, called out that he sees it as a giant billboard. And, and I agree there. I mean, that is a huge advertising opportunity. Right. That I don't think anybody is using appropriately. I don't think anybody's sold any space on it yet. Um, however, 
He dislikes it just not as much as I do. Not quite as much as you, but yeah. I don't think anybody except maybe Christian Horner dislikes it nearly as much as I do. I don't know. Again, you need to follow Martin Brundle. Martin Brundle's very opposed also. Oh, yes. Very, very anti-Finn. Yeah. Finn, not Finn. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. He likes Finns. Yeah. Two ends, he's pro. He's pro the two ends. The one end, not so much pro. So from fins and engines, we go to tires. Not what you think. Okay. Not what you think. (laughs) Actually, there has been a restructuring at Pirelli's operations and racing department. Motorsport chief Paul Hembry, who we have heard from in the past, with a big old target on his chest after Sebastian Vettel lost his snot over some other incident involving the car, is moving on to a new role. Oh. Uh, Paul Hembry will be taking over uh, the CEO position of Pirelli Latin America. Now, it's expected that he will still have some involvement with the the motorsport team and and still do some stuff with their commercial responsibilities, uh, like him retain the seat on the F1 commission. However, Mario Izzola will take on the new role as head of car racing and take Paul Hembry's place over the division. So not what you thought it was. So Mario will get the new T-shirt with a giant target on his chest. Yeah. Well, you know, it'll be interesting to see Paul fade away into the sunset. You know, I suspect that to, I mean, I, I don't know what Pirelli Latin America operations are like or whether or not he's got a nice office. I suspect he's not going to miss most of those post-race press conferences. I just, I have a sneaking feeling. I bet that was cool about twice. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, oh, please don't make me go out there and face them again. After Silverstone in what 2014, he's like, "Yeah, I'm done." That was the curb, the curb incidents. I believe so. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I feel for you, man. I really hope that Latin America division is one of those quiet, you know, retirement divisions for (laughs) you. Now that you've been in the spotlight for so long. So this week was week number two of our winter testing. Our final week of testing Mm -hmm. which means we are two weeks out from australia yay this is where uh teams were were focusing more on race simulations and longer runs and uh the first uh attempt at season spec power units were in place so ferrari for starters have their race spec engines in place and we're running and come the end of the week Kimi Raikkonen set the fastest lap for testing at a 118.634 seconds. Wow. Now, to put that in perspective, the current lap record at uh, Barcelona was set in 2008 by a Ferrari by Kimi Raikkonen. 1 minute 21.670 seconds. Whoa. Yeah. Well, they're getting their seconds increase that they wanted. Now, pole, a little different. We're not quite there yet. He's still four seconds off the pole record at, that's been set at Barcelona. That was set on May 14th, 2006 in a Renault by Fernando Alonso. 
in terms of just well actually before I even jump down to that um, number two with a 119.024 was the other Ferrari Sebastian Vettel well the other Ferrari driver I should say they're all driving the same car but that was Sebastian Vettel Mm -hmm. then came Valtteri Bottas then came Lewis Hamilton then Felipe Massa then Verstappen Carlos Sainz and a Toro Rosso Nico Hulkenberg, Daniel Ricardo, Sergio Perez, Esteban Ocon, Julian Palmer, and so on and so on. But do keep in mind, mm-hmm. that's fine and dandy, except you don't know what you don't know. We don't know what we don't know, but here's what we do know of this. Those who are observing what was going on, and the words of Kimi Raikkonen coming out of the... the testing the final day of testing when he set this fastest lap they could have gone faster seb initially set the fastest lap for the testing period with his 119 and everybody who was watching especially over at turn three said he was lifting around turn three he was not pushing Mm. yeah so it looks fairly promising for Ferrari. Um, Lewis Hamilton even came forward and said, um, Ferrari's bluffing with that top speed, he, that he felt that they could go faster than they were. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Mercedes, on the other hand, they it's believed that they were running higher fuel loads than everybody else. Um, it's believed that they're still playing with some aerodynamics. Uh, Nikki Lauda has said that some of the things that they tested did not work out as well as they hoped they would. Um, and Valtteri Bottas says that there are still some areas for performance that they have not unlocked in the car yet. Oh. But. They have two weeks to find the keys. They do. Um. They weren't all that far behind. I mean, Valtteri's lap was three-tenths behind Sebastian. So th- this we could finally get the Ferrari-Mercedes battle we've been waiting for for the last couple of years. We could. But I still put the giant asterisk. It is testing. Absolutely. And for all you know, that heavier fuel load that's going on in Mercedes means that they could have done two seconds faster than Kimi's lap. Some of the other areas that folks were uh, caught by surprise on. Uh, day one or day two of testing, Felipe Massa had the fastest laps of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, Williams overall, from what they saw in testing, was performing better than people expected them to. Well, I think the bar was kind of low is when you talk about expectations. Yeah. Um, in terms of reliability... Renault is frustrating their drivers and frustrating the teams. There have been uh, several issues with ERS over on the Red Bulls. Um, Jolian Palmer has complained about uh, their performance issues and reliability issues. Uh, There was talk. I have not heard a confirmation one way or the other, but there was actually talk that they were going to – the Renault Works team was going to run their engine – at a lower power level the final day of testing because the reliability issues were impacting their aerodynamics testing. 
So they wanted to at least get some good long runs out of the car so that they could get some good aerodynamic testing done. Wow. So there's those issues going on. So as the countdown began on how long it's going to take Christian Horner to run his mouth on Renault? I don't know. Not yet. I don't think so. You know, we're still preseason. Um, performance wise, the expectation from what they've seen is that when the Red Bulls are running and when the Renaults are running, it, well, when the Red Bulls are running, they're probably nipping at the heels of the Mercedes and the Ferrari when they're running. Um, in terms of just overall laps, this is the other area where we can draw some conclusions. Mercedes put on more laps than anybody else. Um, 2,681 laps for a total of 5,102 kilometers, followed by Ferrari with 2,459 laps, 4,450 kilometers. Then there was Red Bull, um, and that includes the Tag Heuer uh, cars as well, 1,865 laps uh, for 3,724 kilometers. Wow. That leaves one manufacturer. Now, as you recall, the first week of testing, Mm -hmm. we talked about how Honda had introduced a new old feature of catastrophic engine failures. (laughs) So they had a weekend off to go back and take a look at their catastrophic engine failures and figure out what was happening. And as a result, when testing happened this week, things went from bad to bad. Oh. Honda did just 425 laps for a total of 3,668 kilometers. I, if I remember correctly, they were unable to get a string of laps greater than 10 completed. Oh, wow. Yeah. Electrical issues. We, we've got more on their situation. Actually, I should jump right over yeah, we've got more on that in a little bit. But but as you just talked about with like Renault and Red Bull going on, if you don't get laps, you can't do the aero tests, which puts McLaren on the back foot for some of the chassis design pieces because they don't have more than 10 laps of data. Right. Well, th- there's even more issues with that. Um, so Fernando Alonso spoke to the press this week. And he was thrilled with his car, wasn't he? Well... He said, after two days of test, or, or yeah, two days into the test number two, he said he was enjoying the faster cars of 2017, and he did say that he feels confident that this year McLaren Honda will be competitive. He doesn't know at which point, <laughs> but he feels that they will be competitive. Okay. Now, he says that, and, and I don't know where he's getting this info from. He said that he f- the, uh, the performance of the chassis feels good. Okay. Okay. But then he goes to say that uh, the lack of power of the engine made it difficult to properly assess the quality of the car. He says, I think we are 30 kilometers down on every straight. When you are 30 kilometers down on every straight, it is difficult also to have a feeling on the car. Everything feels good, but you don't know what is going to happen when you arrive at normal speed. Now, to clarify, when people actually clocked it, because, you know, this was Fernando's butt dyno. 
Yeah. The <laughs> real clocking, the car was down about 16 and a half miles per hour on the straights. 60? 60? 16. 16.5. 16.5. Um, and that's compared to Valtteri Bottas. Um, but that's in miles per hour, right? Yes. Or 26.4 kilometers per hour. Thank you. I was doing math real I, quick. I realized that you were trying to do that. Because he, so I was just trying to see how accurate Alonzo's butt dyno was. And the fact that he's only four kilometers off. Yeah. Per hour. That's not a bad butt dyno. That's pretty good. I mean, the differential between a one mile per hour to one kilometer per hour is one mile per hour is worth 1.6 kilometers per hour. So it's well, yeah. it's one and a half. So truly, he was down maybe two and a half miles per hour. Okay, that's not bad. I mean, with, with his experience, I could see him being that accurate. Um, so Fernando has said that definitely we need to improve and we must improve. The situation is far from ideal, but we are a big team. We need a reaction from everyone. Stay united, working close together. Um, the oil tank problem that happened on the first day of testing, Fernando described as amateur. Of course. Now, the other piece, though, to remember is that Fernando's contract is through the end of this year. Yes. And Fernando has also said, when asked about his future last year and the previous year, that truly whether or not he enjoyed the cars and how the car was doing and how things were going this year was going to impact his decision as to whether or not he was going to stay on beyond this year. Well, he also said to the press this week that a bad 2017 season with Honda would not drive him out of the sport. Okay. Now, he didn't say whether or not that would keep him with McLaren Honda, just that it wouldn't drive him out of the sport. Let's be clear on that. Okay. Um, what he said when, when he elaborated on his comments is that I'm always going anti-clockwise against what people think. When people go pessimistic, I go optimistic. When people are overexcited, I get worried. I feel confident that this year we will be competitive. I don't know at which point in the year, but we will be competitive, and I want to win races. I want to be on the podium. And everything. And if everything goes in the wrong direction, I will, I will attack next year, you know. It brings me more motivation to continue and to win. I will not stop racing without a good feeling and a good result that I think I deserve. He said, if one day I feel in the car... People I see on the corners that they do fantastic lines. They break later than me. They accelerate earlier than me. They do better starts than me. You know, that day I will stop and I will say it's time. What I'm seeing now is completely the opposite. More than ever this year, this winter. What I see on the track, what I see myself is at the best level. So now it is the time to attack. And what I've got to say to that is that it's a whole lot easier to hit the apex of the corner and to appear to get a faster start when your car is underpowered and underperforming as opposed to it is when your car is faster and you need faster reaction times. That is true. <laughs> I'm just saying. Maybe measuring his performance in the McLaren against somebody else as a judge of whether or not to remain in the sport isn't the right strategy. Possibly. 
I don't know. I, I still have to wonder if it's not time. I know I have I, an unpopular opinion. I don't know. I mean, it, it's hard to tell when he is in this car. All I think I can say with 100% confidence is that when it comes to finding success, ever since he left Renault, Fernando sucks at it. Well, there's definitely, you are correct. And, you know, Renault slash Minardi, I mean, those were his years. But, okay, I'm just kind of thinking this thing through, and I'm spitballing, and I get that. you got to look at Massa for a second. Mm -hmm. His former teammate in Ferrari. Mm -hmm. Last year in a Williams, Massa had more success than Fernando did. Yep. Now, in one way of looking at it, you could say, well, that makes Massa a better driver than Fernando. How about in the last two years with Williams, Massa has had more success than Fernando has had. Correct. <clears throat> so if you think that through, you know, you could take one measure and say, well, that makes Massa a better driver. But Massa was on the chopping block for being retired last year and only came back because Nico Rosberg up and left this, you know, packed up his toys and left home. Mm-hmm. So... With that measurement, I get that the McLaren isn't all that in a bag of chips, but nobody else is talking to it. Well, actually, no. And again, let's go back to Fernando Alonso being his own worst enemy when it comes to his success. Yeah. He admitted this past week, Mercedes approached him with a contract and he turned it down. No. Toto, you were wrong. Mercedes approached Fernando with... Now, I'm sure there would have been a lot of fireworks flying through that whole thing, but Mercedes approached Fernando with a contract over the offseason to take Nico's seat, and Fernando elected to stay at McLaren. He is his own worst enemy. Well, yes, he's his own worst enemy, but that was not a bright move by Mercedes. The atmosphere in the McLaren garage when Fernando and Hamilton drove together was so toxic. Oh, yeah. That I don't see that having ever worked out. You thought the Hamilton-Nico rivalry was rough. But what would have been even more interesting is... The difference there in that initial McLaren-Fernando-Lewis uh, garage was that here you had Fernando, who was the two-time world champion, and Lewis Hamilton, the hot shoe rookie. Mm-hmm. Now you would have had Fernando Alonso, the two-time, veteran, or two-time world champion veteran driver, paired with Lewis Hamilton, the three-time world champion veteran driver. True. That could have been very interesting. It could have been. It could have also spelled absolute nuclear bomb explosion in that garage. Think of how much we would have had to talk about. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah, we would have had a lot to talk about. For 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 those of us who who rely on the drama to help us produce content, this 
would have been right up there with Jon Stewart staying on The Daily Show after Donald Trump announced his nom- he was uh, running for president. Right up there. I blame Jon Stewart for that, by the way. Yeah, I do too. Anyway, so away from the politics, move off of that. Some conclusions that everyone is drawing from this week, actually from both weeks of testing. The first one, as I mentioned, is everyone is convinced that Ferrari could have gone much faster than they have. Um, Like I mentioned, there was uh, Sebastian Vettel backing off. And actually, I was wrong. It wasn't turn three. It was the final corner that they heard him backing off. Mm. Um, Then for Kimmy to come on, apparently his time that he set, that 118.634, that was on used super soft tires. That wasn't even fresh tires. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, And he made an error on turn five. Okay. Now, everything is not perfect because there was a technical problem during uh, his, his race simulation runs that, uh, I guess, took the card out. Um, he actually ended up sp- uh, spinning once the, the rear wheels locked up. Oh, that's not So good. it's not perfect, but there's potential there. Okay. Um. Things are bad at McLaren Honda. Okay, I think we've discussed that things are bad. Well, no. A little more about this, okay? Um, at the, the, the engine that Honda brought to the final preseason test was vibrating so badly it started to break other parts of the car and caused the electrical systems to fail repeatedly without warning. Ooh. Honda has spent so much of the winter working on advanced combustion technology in its bid to close the gap to everybody else. Um, The combustion process that they ended up creating is so unstable the engine will not hold together. One of the engine units ejected a piston during one of Stoffel Van Dorn's runs in the car. Ejected a piston? That is how bad this is. Yes. When I say Honda is in trouble, I mean... Mayday, 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 we're going down in flames kind of in trouble. Ejected a piston. Mm-hmm. Whoa. That's not going to be safe. Now you add on top of that that it's believed, based on early indications, that this 2017 engine, this totally new redesigned engine, is down on power compared to the 2016 unit, the first one that they put out. The updated version tried at the second test was even worse than that. Mm. The car is down on power, lacking traction due to woeful drivability, and so unreliable that McLaren completed only 30% of the work it planned to do in preseason. That's equivalent to less than two and a half days of testing. Whoa. And as I mentioned, McLaren could barely string together 10 laps in one go. Mm. That's why I say Honda's in bad shape. That is not good. Um, it's also believed that Fernando is starting to run out of patience with the team. Not surprising. Um, 
talked about McLaren or Mercedes rather and the belief that there is still more to happen there. Um, they are still dealing with some inconsistencies with performance. Uh, Mercedes called it a lack of robustness in parts of the floor. Um, it also didn't complete a full race run. Hmm. Uh, whatever's going on over at Renault, it's believed that it is magnified by the Red Bull chassis. Oh. Um, there were ERS issues on Palmer's car, MGUK issues, as we mentioned, uh, on Max Verstappen's car. It's believed that the new energy recovery system that's part of the MGUK is, or, or excuse me, the, the MGUK, which is part of the ERS, is extremely fragile. Oh, fragile's it, not a good thing. Yeah. Uh, which means that's why they only got eight, 1,865 laps over two weeks of Barcelona. And that's apparently all the Renault cars. Oh, total? Yeah. Red Bull also says, according to Daniel Ricardo, that they, quote, got a little bit confused with some setup things on Thursday. Okay. And that impacted their performance and their times. Um, but Max did do a 1 minute 19.438 uh, seconds. So there's a possibility that something could be going on there. Um, a little bit about tires. There, there was talk last week that, you know, th these are more durable tires and we could be looking at nothing but one-stop races. Uh, they are seeing some degradation. Okay. So the thought is warmer weather races, we could have multiple pit stops. Okay. But still, it's going to be iffy. Like I said, Williams did much better than people were expecting them to. Um, some of it is, I guess, there is more uh, more drag, more downforce coming to front from the front end of the car, and that suits Felipe's style of driving best. Mm -hmm. So that's why they're seeing a performance that they are. Uh, but there is a suspicion that what we saw this past week was the best that we get out of the Williams. Ah. So we don't know. The last thing is with the clutches. There are changes now to the race start procedures. The main change is that clutch paddles must now have a linear relationship with the clutch torque control. Basically, clever maps can't be used to ensure that drivers dump the clutch into a rough window and let the computers take care of the rest. Also, there are now physical limits imposed on where the clutch paddles can be set against other controls. And this is so that drivers cannot use their fingers to find reference points. Oh, interesting. So as a result of that, especially from what people watch during the practice starts that happened in Barcelona, um, it's believed that these are much more difficult to get right. And we are not going to see drivers have consistently good starts. That's a good thing. Yeah, I agree. Um, Kevin Magnuson says that they'll see some guys getting massive starts and getting loads of positions and others losing out massively. He said there's going to be some spread. Um, over in the midfield, everybody's close. Several teams are in the mix over there. Uh, Williams, Toro Rosso, Renault, Force India, and Haas um, lapped within a second of each other in testing uh, with Felipe Massa's time at the head 
and uh, Kevin Magnuson. You know, Massa did a one nineteen point four. Magnuson's time was only a one minute twenty point five oh four. Oh wow! So everything is super super close there. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, who knows what's going to happen with McLaren? All right. Are they going to be taken up the back or what? Well, you know, it's about time that Sauber had good competition. <laughs> and it seems the drivers like the new cars. Okay. Well, those that are working. <laughs> the ones that work. Yeah. Do they like? Are they pro fin or are they anti fin? They're not talking about the fin. They're talking about feeling the car and and the extra speed and how much more physical it is and all the things that they've been whining about the last couple of years, with the exception of the noise. Okay. Our last story. Motorsport number five. Number five. World Rally Championship. Okay. This weekend, WRC uh, is down in Mexico for the WRC Rally Mexico. Uh, And on Friday, they were forced to cancel uh, two stages. They were forced to cancel two stages because the cars fails, failed to arrive back in Lyon after Thursday night's Mexico City stage. There was a four-car convoy, or four-truck convoy, that was responsible for transporting the cars. They got held up in traffic in an accident in the early hours of the morning on the road back to the service park from Mexico City after the Zocalo Street Run. That's right, a race was canceled due to traffic. Oh, my. <laughs> As the organizers said, uh, and this was Friday morning, they were forced to cancel the El Chocolat and Las Minas for the first run. The cars were still 100 kilometers away from the service park. Oh my. Now, it is important to note that none of the trucks carrying the cars competing in the event were involved in the accident, but the highway was closed due to the serious nature of the crash. Um, the second run of Friday stages were not affected by the issue. So they got the cars there. Yeah. Wow. I don't think I've ever heard of, you know, the cars not making it to the start line. Yeah. Well, not making it to the start line due to traffic. Due to traffic. That's the big thing. They there couldn't was, get the cars traffic. there due to traffic. It's traffic. I tried my best. I couldn't get there. Yeah. I mean, we've heard Mexico City traffic is bad, but this is a new impact. This is new. Well, I hope that that does not have a... Uh, you know, a repeat experience when Formula One goes to Mexico. Well, that's why they get there several days early. You know, they, they bug out of Austin as quickly as possible and make the drive down. Well, there could be more new border control issues going in because I'm quite sure that Mexico doesn't want anything that came from the United States these days. <laughs> okay, there may be that too. I mean, we talk a lot about this side of the border. We never talk about the other side of the border, which I don't think is as permeable as one thinks. So, again, trying to get away from the politics. I know. Away from the politics. Next week, if nothing else happens, you are guaranteed we are going to break out the predictions for 2017. So if you have something that you would like us to prognosticate on, as part of our predictions for 2017, please leave us a note over on the Facebook page or in the comments for the, the post for the show. Um, I'll be working on a list ourselves, and, and we'll see what we come up with. Um, 
I assume this year it will once again be the bloke, the bird, and the boys predictions. I would assume so. I think that we should invite invite him if he is interested in predicting the future. Okay. I will be busting out and dusting off my crystal ball because I do believe that I won the predictions last year. No, actually, you didn't. Actually, I did. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> I still have that over in the archive, and you didn't. It was pretty close, but I believe you lost by one. I don't believe I lost by one. I believe the boy was, you, you were ahead of the boy, but you lost at least No, one. I know. I am I'm very confident in my win. Okay. We will, we will pull it out of the vault to confirm. Uh-huh. And on that note, we'll cue Barbie. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay. Whew.